0: Hello, and welcome to Revise, Rebut, and Resubmit, a podcast that explores early career researchers' experiences in publishing their first academic paper, and which celebrates this important milestone. My name is Jennifer Fitchett, and I'm an Associate Professor of Physical Geography, an avid science communicator, and a still relatively young academic with a passion for breaking down the barriers and unnecessary mysticism in the publication process. Each episode, I interview a new person on their journey in writing, revising, rebutting, resubmitting, and having their first academic paper published. This podcast is very kindly supported by the DSI NRF Centre of Excellence for Paleo Sciences, which has recently been rebranded as Genus Paleo Sciences. Nchali is the Education and Energy and Environment Editor at The Conversation Africa. The team of editors at The Conversation work with academics to translate their research findings into readable news articles for the public. This provides a valuable platform for science communication and bridges the gap between pieces written about science by non-scientists and the scientific outputs themselves, which are not easily read by the public. Having worked with The Conversation for many years, writing pieces that break down my research outputs and writing commissioned articles on current climate events, I'm very excited to have Nantebeko on this podcast to talk about the processes that are followed at the Conversation Africa. I should also mention that my own first podcast appearance was on the Conversations podcast, Pasha, run by Ozea Patel, and it certainly sparked my interest in podcasting. Nantebeko, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's my absolute pleasure. So let's begin by telling people who perhaps haven't encountered the conversation what the conversation is and the kind of work that you do.
1: So, Jennifer, the conversation is essentially a news outlet. Um, And the difference with us is that instead of the content that we publish being written by journalists, we actually get academics to write the articles that our readers read and the the intention behind that was we saw that there's a wealth of information that is trapped in academic journals that's trapped in universities that the public doesn't have access to and you'd know this that you know uh, academic journals are essentially written for other academics. so it's it's peers who read how their peers work. And a person who's not in that space, even if I tried to sit down trying to wrap my head around an academic journal article, I, I wouldn't be able to understand half of the things that are written there. So our mandate is to of bridge that gap and create a space where ordinary public members who aren't in academia, can be clued up about the wonderful research that's coming out of our of our universities and that's where we come in in that we take ac- academic content or you know content that's written for other academics and we just change the language we make it more accessible to readers and so that's where our expertise as journalists come in where we take something and we show the reader why it's important. We show them the relevance and we put it in, it, we, we we present the information in a way that's understandable for them. So it's essentially news with a twist because it's, it's basically research that is written for people outside of academia. And we just, you know, changing the language in and, and having people read things that are written by experts because that's another thing that we're trying to, to address where we get people that know exactly what they're doing and know what they're talking about, to communicate that and so give people content that's written by people who are experts in their field. And that's essentially what it is, just bridging the gap between academia and opening the gates just a bit wider for that work to be written by a much wider audience beyond the academic sector.
0: Yeah, and I think it's so, so important in, as you say, being able to create that uh, bridge Between two very different forms of communication. And in the Mm. academic space, you're quite right. We're writing academic papers for an academic audience, and a lot of the review process is actually pushing us to be less and less clear in our communication to a general public Mm. because we are asked to include very detailed information on methodologies using techniques that no one outside of our field would have heard about. We're asked to include huge amounts of statistical analysis or very very detailed qualitative analysis that probably isn't understandable to people who are even in academia but in different fields and so Mm. you're doing the opposite you're taking something that is very very dense and academic and then turning it into something where the story behind it is very clear and i think that's incredibly valuable Exactly,
1: and it's funny how you just how you mentioning now that you know there's a specific focus on certain things that even other academics wouldn't understand. We find it so funny sometimes when we when we try and explain to academics what it is that we do, and we try to basically just get them to flip uh, the scripts in how they've always done things. So, and you'd know this that you know often, not even often, all, all the time. The, the gem of the research. So when so when you ask someone what it is that you found, that would always be buried in in the conclusion because the entire paper is background, the context. So I I always say academics, so when you write the story, starts with what you would often bury in the conclusion when you write your journal article. So just flip that, because now you are communicating to someone who's not in academia and you're telling them about your research. So say, this is what I found. This has been the problem this is what we've learned and this what and this is what can be done going forward with these new findings. So it's always sometimes, especially in the beginning with our first time authors, it's always like, they always short circuits a bit when they write the article and <laughs> they eventually get to the story in the very last paragraph when I say no, what you put in the last three paragraphs, that needs to go to the top. So yeah. just also conscientizing them to be able to communicate to a mainstream audience as opposed to an academic audience. It's always quite funny sometimes when you try to explain to them what you're trying to do. But once they get the hang of it and they enjoy the process and they see actually, when they look at their numbers on their dashboards, because we all, we also have dashboards for academics as well as the institutions that they're affiliated with, when they see their numbers going into the thousands, they always get shocked because you don't often get those numbers in a journal article. So it's yeah. always such fun to just watch their minds being blown about how it is that we can, you know, how their work can just go out there and be consumed by a whole lot more people than they would normally be used to. So it's always such fun to do that.
0: Absolutely. And I think in academic work, we often don't even know what our readership is. We know what our number of citations are, but that's a very, very small proportion of the people reading it. And it's a very small proportion of the people who are engaging with it. Our citation counts are only through formal sources. And I know, for example, how many sources I cited in my master's or my PhD. And those are people who are real life people reading the work and and we don't notice it. And I think you're right. It's really important for us to start to look at different types of metrics around academic performance and academic reach. And understand that the work that we do is not just to tick a box that we've published our two units a year, or uh, that we've got an h-index of whatever, or a total number of citations. But where is it making an impact, and what is that impact? And that's far more about the general public than it is about the insular community in our particular academic field.
1: Exactly, exactly, Jennifer. And speaking of that, speaking of the impact, now there's, there is now a, an acceptance, if we can put it that way, that Community involvement is important when it comes to, you know, academic work that's been produced. And a lot, a lot of organizations are also, and you'd know this with the NRA, for example, are putting that in their requirements to say, show us how your research is, how are you communicating it to an audience that's beyond just academia? And Jennifer, if I can just put you on the spot and open your dashboard here, <laughs> I was actually having a look <laughs> Actually, and I, no, no, I'm not even joking. So the article that she wrote for us that's looking at climate change and you know how it's already hit Southern Africa, it's actually if you go to the if you go to our homepage, there's top five stories. There's a there's a section that shows what are the current top rate articles. And yours is at the top. Oh, wow. Um and it's, <laughs> exactly. so it's been since we've published, it's been sitting there on the top of the list. And it just goes to show, so if you go to your dashboard, you'd also see as the author, as I mentioned, that, you know, authors get their dashboards and they actually get to see where their articles are being written, which media outlets are republishing them. So, so far that one story that, that I mentioned um, earlier, Jennifer, you've it's been picked up by over 20 media outlets, including the Daily Maverick, all Africa. So it just speaks to the thirst that people are interested in work that is being produced in academia, but it's often trapped in academic journals. And our, our numbers show that people outside of academia have a thirst for knowledge. And I mean, now, also now, I, I think also the role that we're playing is trying to curb miscommunication because everyone can publish, we all have social media accounts, we can all put things out there and speak with authority on things most of us have no idea about. And I think people coming here specifically to our website to read things that are written by academics, it shows that they have a thirst for knowledge that is actually trusted and that they know is based on, you know, research. And, and it's not just people, you know, speaking about things that they're not entirely clued up on. And going back to your your, your dashboard, Jenny also it shows, you know, the breakdown of where stories are are read. So a bulk of 32% of the, of the readers in the article are in South Africa. And another 20, 21% are from the United States, the, wow. the article rubbish for us. And a fifth are from Australia and a portion, 7% is from India. So as a, as an author who's, who's, who writes for us, you're able to see how far and wide your article goes. You're able to see who's rated, where they've rated. And so you can take this knowledge and you know put it in your portfolio to say this is this is my contribution to community engagements. This is where my science is going, and this is where people are reading my work. So I think it's just also such a great tool to also show academics that actually it's not just other peer your peers that are interested in your work. There's a wider audience out there, and I think that can only be encouraging for a person in you know in your position to see that you know what someone in India who is in nowhere related to academia is reading my work. And I think that's just such a great tool to have and and a great reach to have.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned social media. And I think it's also amazing how pieces in the conversation get picked up in social media and reposted. And I think it is, as you say, because Mm -hmm. people are so desperate to avoid fake news. I I realized that my piece had gone live on your website on Monday. I was on the road and I looked at my phone and suddenly I have multiple Twitter notifications and Facebook notifications. (laughs) And, and I was like, Oh gosh, what's happening here. And and it is that a piece is just being published in the conversation. And that picks Mm. up much faster than if a paper is published in Let's say the International Journal of Climatology. Some of the journals are are better than others and they do tweet their tables of contents or recent papers out, but they don't get picked up in the way that pieces in the conversation do. And they certainly don't get retweeted or they don't get the engagement that you get through the conversation. But I wanted yeah. to ask you, so this this particular piece was one of the ones, and, and I think I've got a relatively even balance between pieces where I'm writing about a particular paper I've just published, and then pieces which are in a sense commissioned by the conversation, to uh mm. speak to a particular issue whether it's a tropical cyclone that's about to make landfall i know you guys always contact me yes, when tropical exactly. cyclones are coming and this particular one was as specifically as part of the lead up to cop 26 to reflect on mm. climate changes that are already happening i wanted to ask what your balance is of those and whether it's something that you Deliberately enforce a particular proportion that is people writing about their own work versus people who are reflecting on current events, or whether it's something that just quite organically develops over time that there is this balance of, of in a sense, these two different streams of, of pieces. It's a very
1: organic process, Jennifer, because as you mentioned, so as a commissioning editor, I am responsible for just keeping an eye on what's happening in my beats. So in this case, it's going be environment and energy, and I also oversee the education section. So I need to know what research is coming out. First of all, which are the major journal articles, I mean journals that cover the issues that cover the issues that fall within my beats. So I need to stay on top of that see who's publishing the new research that's come out. So in those cases, my responsibility would then be to to go to the South African Journal of Science, have a look at who the author is, reach out to them and say, hi, I'm from the Conversation Africa. This is what we do. came across your paper it looks very interesting would you be keen to write an 800 word article for us about this so that's where i commission actively and the other parts the other aspect that we have in terms of sourcing uh, the articles that we publish is on our websites we have we have a pitch facility so that's where authors as well as readers actually can pitch article ideas to us so author pitches specifically are very active where authors know who we are they know how we work And they come to us about their ideas and say this is the article I have in mind, this is the research that it's based on, or this is what sparked it, and then the conversation goes from there and then we end up having an article that comes from the author having approached us. And also the other aspect which is similar to a pitch but not entirely, is also authors who know us and they've written for us so they understand that I have an article that's coming out or I have a script that's been accepted for publication. I would like for it to also appear in the conversation and obviously because we publish things that are based on research the requirement is that, that that research has to have been published so that when a reader is reading up you, you know your article in the conversation they can click on the on the research they're talking to and they click on the your URL link and they can actually open the paper and they you know, dive deep, deeper into that if, if, if they want to do that. And so an author would then come and say, so next Wednesday, I have an article coming out in the African Journal of Science. This is what it's about. And I would then ask them, because we are trying to write the article. In that case, we're trying to write the article and have it ready for when it's published. Yeah. It also then would go live on our websites. So we'd work on a draft. I would ask the author for a, a you know a, a copy of the paper and assure them that you know it'll it'll only be used for editing purposes internally. It won't be reproduced in any way. And authors are kind of understanding about this because both of us are trying to you know write and you know work on an article that'll be out there as soon as the research goes live. And so we work in that way where we work on articles and we bank them and wait for the for for, for them to be published. And we also troll the news because obviously we're not just keeping an eye on the research developments, but what we write, and that's also where our skills come in as journalists, is that what we publish what we publish has to be part of the news cycle. And as much as we're writing about academic research, we can't do that in isolation. So we have to feed into the conversations that are happening. So in this case, especially with COVID, COVID was a huge learning curve for us where this huge thing happens yeah. and research, you know, science is, is, it's a novel virus. So science is not established in this, in, in you know, in any way. And so they, it's, it's you would go to a health experts and get more a systemic in the beginning, especially nowadays, obviously research has come out. But in that case, it would be a news events And you'd go to a person in a particular field, whether it's public health or any other news events, you know, with ESCOM, with the load shedding. So you'd go to people in that space and say, okay, there's another, yet another round of load shedding. Give us an explainer on what the issues are with ESCOM, because, you know, some customers would have some idea of there's debt at ESCOM, there's this and that, there's unmaintained infrastructure. So just give us the landscape of what is up with ESCOM? What's the debt situation? Like why is it that four hours a day, two hours a day, depending on the stage that I don't have power? Yeah. So we get a person to step back. So they're not necessarily writing on a research paper but they are in that space that's the area of speciality and they can kind of, kind of give a reader an overview or articles that we call explainers, where we take an issue and get somebody to break it down. So we also do that with news articles, as as you mentioned now with, you know, when the cyclones come up and we get the rains in Joburg, but Mozambique there's, you know, flooding that's happening. So we explain to the reader that this weather pattern that she's seeing this is what it, this, this is what's influencing it. And that's when I'd send you an email, quite a rushed email and say, Jennifer, Jennifer, please send me read an article on Cyclone Idai. And, and that's when you provide the context. So it's not necessarily that you've done research on the cyclone that's hitting, that's making landfall in Mozambique, but I'm tapping into your expertise in your field. Yeah. And so in that way, it's kind of a news article because it's something that's happening now, but it's been written by an experts who's giving us an analysis of you know what's what's influencing these weather dynamics, why are we seeing what we're seeing? So there's quite different ways in which we source articles. So it's it's both us as commission editors being very active and people and authors just coming to us who've worked with us before. And sometimes we even get new authors who say, you know, I've got your details from this author, my professor. This is what I have in mind. And then we get the conversations going from there. So it's quite an organic um, process. And it's also intentional on our yeah. side, linking it to the news cycles and, and,
0: the, and the stuff that I've mentioned. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's really great in keeping things topical and making sure that people really want to read because they know that there is information that's going to relate to something that they are getting information from, from other sources. And as you've said, that they then know that this is written by an expert. And it's not just somebody who's thumb sucking or who um, perhaps has a neighbor's uncle son who works for this company (laughs) and has this information that they know that it's coming from an academic basis. Mm, Exactly. So the next question I wanted to ask you, and this debate seems to bubble up every couple of years or so, is that there is this perceived, and I'd be interested to know how real you think this is, but this perceived divide between press releases, particularly about academic work and science journalism, and the perception that press releases are universities really punting a particular piece of work or a patent that's just been obtained because Mm. they want to market their university, they want to market their researchers. And Mm. then on the opposite side, science journalism, which is quite formulaic uh, at least from a reader's perspective it seems very formulaic in that they will always try and get at least two different people working in the same field and they'll juxtapose their different comments against each other Um, and they often try and get one international person and one local person let's say that there Mm. must always be two counterpoints to make it balanced and Uh the conversation sits in an interesting place because it's it's not a press release it is the own academic talking about their work but it's not A jazzed up press release that says that this is the first ever thing to do this, or this is a groundbreaking, whatever. That kind of language is not used in the conversation. It's far more humble in the way that people talk about their own work. But at the mm. same time, although you do require hyperlinks for for any statement of fact, you don't mm. have multiple different academics' views being juxtaposed against each other. And so, I'm interested mm. to hear how how you, as an editor at the conversation, and perhaps the conversation more broadly, if if this has been discussed, how you see this debate and this ongoing conversation that they, that we should suppress press releases, or that we must invest more money in in science journalism, and that science journalists should be in control of the voice around scientific yes. developments. And I am speaking about science in a, a very broad meaning, you know, I'm including yeah. economics and politics and all the rest in that. But sure. yes, I'm very interested on your take on that.
1: So uh, to, to answer part of your question, where you said if we at the conversation have discussed it, not intentionally, academia is is a whole ecosystem, if I can put it that way. There is a role for a scientist such as yourself trying to communicate their work. There is a role for the comms office adverts to publicise that work, and there is a role for the journalists who are sitting in their offices who receive the press releases to interrogate that. And there is a role for me as a commissioning editor at the conversation to engage with this press release and that is about commissioning ideas, or I may reach out to you directly and say, I just saw this press release from your university, your paper is on this, I'm very interested. Would you be keen to write for us? So I think there is room for all of those players and actors within this within this huge ecosystem. So maybe the issue could be that, you know, because because of resources and newsroom being constrained in a certain way, then they would just copy and paste a a press release without interrogating it. And that obviously has an impact on just reducing the quality of journalism. It is a very legitimate argument. But to say there should be a separation of press releases, I don't think so, because it is the university's role and it is the the communication office of the university put that work out there. And then it depends on us, the users, as in the industry, as in the media industry, or people internally, a professor whose work is out there in a press release, forwarding that to his mom. That's a great thing. And so how we use it is different and it's all very important. So as I mentioned, so I I do sign up on use on, I'm on the mailing list of universities because I wanna see that work. And for me, as the commission editor the conversation, number one, it tells me what research is coming out, which is my bread and butter. And I know which author is working on certain things. And so I know even for a letter story, maybe, maybe you know, the, what's coming out then I may not be interested in or it doesn't apply to me. I can forward it to a colleague. and But I would just know that this is an expert in this field. So in future, if I want some, to speak to someone, you know, in relation to this, this is a person I can speak to. So it also assists me in just building my network and knowing who's doing what's in the zoo, you know. So that's the role that, that plays for me in, personally as a commissioning editor. And for journalists, also we, they in the news, they you know, it, it's it's informa- it's putting information out there. And as a journalist, it has to be that. So unlike us who who gets the academics write about their research, journalists have to have that balance, <laughs> the balance that you mentioned of international, national, uh, yeah, your name, you know, getting interviews. That is part of the journalistic process. Because they're not a, a, a you know a communication office at, at, at sitting adverts. So they need to actually say, so so here's the work that's coming out. They need to get another expert in that field because journalists aren't experts in, you know, they, they're not experts in the field of you know whatever the subject is of the research that's the press that's in the press release, but they can get other experts in the field because they have to capture various different voices, because they're not well if they're doing it properly when they're not just copying and pasting the press release they would need to get voices and here you need to get a voice from an expert in the field and so and I find that it's always richer if you get countering views so I don't think it's a matter of hitting people against each other it's just a matter of giving the reader a more holistic um, take and sometimes you could call somebody and they agree um, and sometimes you call somebody and they don't agree. So I think the more voices you have, and the more different they are, it just makes for a richer read for the reader who doesn't know this and says, oh, I never considered this. And then they read another view that says, oh, okay, so this is what this other person thinks. So I think those differing views are not to, you know, create conflicts. I think it's just to diversify voices, which as on, on the journalistic fronts, that is what needs to be done. Because it would be odd if you just write an article where it's everyone agrees, not that people should fight, but you want to, you know, you want to portray different voices and give people a, a more holistic view of what the various issues are. So I think there's just, there's value in press releases, there's value in journalism in the way that they do, it's where they get different views. And there's value in what we do, which is science communication, which is just getting the work that would be trapped in a press release, that would be trapped in university, that would be trapped in a journal to put it out there for readers. And how we approach it as the conversation where we've got different voices. And we've we've had this before where, and an author would write for us based on their research. And we would put that, you know, in, in the style that we write, you'd see that, you know, author says, I, did, I conducted this research and this is what I found. And I'd get an academic calling me and saying, mm-hmm. I want to respond to Jennifer's article. I, I don't think she's correct. I think, you know, and then they want to present a counter view. So I would tell them that we don't do counter views like that. So if you want to present another view, please share with me the research that your view is based on. And if that's the case, then we can write an article based on your research that would then provide a different view to what Jennifer has written. So it won't be like I'm responding to so and so. And this is what I think. I'd say come with the research. What is your view based on? Give me the research and you and I can work on an article that is based on research. And in that article, you know, as they write, they can say that, you know, Earlier on, other other academics have this particular view, and then they can link your article so that we can put that in the context, but we can't have an article that's premised on just saying, no, I disagree. Yeah. You disagree based on what? Show me the research, and then we can work from there. So that is how in the conversation we, we provide room for the different views to come out. It's it's just that the core um the requirement is that it has to be based on research. We we're not writing opinion pieces here. Yes, we disagree what is it informed by let's work on that give me the facts give me the general article that this is based on and i can happily work with you on that one
0: yeah you've said two things that are really critical to having good engagement between academics the one being how you frame it and as you said not pitting people against each other but showing a diversity of viewpoints and then secondly very importantly that people have to have done research and on that particular topic and as you say if tropical cyclone Idai is making landfall tomorrow, obviously no one has done research on tropical cyclone Idai at that point. But there exactly. are a lot of people who've done research on tropical cyclones in the Southwest Indian Ocean, and I think mm. that perhaps is some of the some of the time where, particularly from the academic side. Uh, Issues start to arise in the more traditional science journalism, where you do have a local expert who is working on that particular region. And Mm -hmm. there are many other local experts who are also working on that region because it is local to them. And you then get a counter view from somebody who's sitting overseas, who probably does work on tropical cyclones. So they might not just be a sort of generalist climatologist who actually focuses on the polar jet stream, or they focus on tornadoes or something, but it may mm. well be somebody who works on tropical cyclones, but they haven't been following the dynamics in that region. And so when those viewpoints are juxtaposed without asking the question, have you actually done research in this region? And can you show it to nope. me? But instead just mm. going, well, I googled climate and a climate expert and somebody from Yale or Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge pops up that you aren't contacting them because of the name, but you're contacting them because of their research on that topic and recognizing that research expertise are very, very specific to regions, to sub-disciplines, and that somebody can be the world expert on a different topic under a broader discipline, but they may not be the best word for that region. And and I think that's where a lot of concern around sort of colonial science or parachute science or however you want to call it comes mm. in that often by trying to juxtapose local and international scientists, the the suggestion then is that the people from the Yales and Harvards and um, or Oxfords or Cambridges that they are then the world leading expert on every topic. And yeah. and more Uh, strongly placed than people in Africa. And and it's one of the reasons why I think it's so fantastic that the conversation has an Africa chapter to it, Mm -hmm. because it really is giving voice to a huge number of academics from Africa who, as you say, are producing brilliant research, but is being trapped behind journals and journal paywalls and trapped within university mm. seminars. And we need to elevate those voices of, of African scholars and make sure that they are being given an equal platform to be able to share their research and share their positions on current events that relate to exactly. the research that they've been doing.
1: Hmm. And, that's, and that's the other thing with us is that obviously when we when we launched the Conversation Africa League, it was based at, in Joburg. But we are, as well as, so it's, it was the job work was the main office, and then we have an office in, in Nigeria, in Lagos, as well as in in Nairobi, in Kenya, and we have a commissioning editor in Ghana, in Senegal. So we also understand that even within the broader African context, there are certain senses that are stronger than others. And so we try, we're also trying to have a pan-African outlook. So we, we're not just commissioning from Southern Africa or not just commissioning in a certain part of the continent, but just getting all those views out there. And the value with having colleagues in other regions of the continent is that sometimes, so for example, let's say we are working on the metric results, which are a big item in our new cycling in our agenda. But having somebody in Nigeria write about the education context here would be different. So now at least that we have offices elsewhere, they you know, we have commissioning editors based in that environment who are from that part of the world and who would who would edit and just have a grasp. Have a have a more nuanced take, a more nuanced take on issues that someone in another country, still on the continent, but you know in another country is sitting. So I think also that's just having having a local presence on in the broader African you know uh, continent, having a local presence in the different regions also allows for that rich mixture of getting local getting things in the region that are edited and commissioned and communicated by people in that region also just gives us a very rich take of getting a more holistic view of things on the continents. Because I, sitting in Joburg, as much as I can Look up someone who's based at the, you know, at Aton university in Nairobi, it'll be quite different than having someone in Nairobi, you know, commissioning on that specific thing. So I think that's also the, um, you know, the plus on our side. And that's, we have quite a broad presence in various parts of the continent. And that just also speaks to our intention with unearthing African and not just, you know, based in a certain part of the continent, but unearthing, you know, the richness that's actually present in all parts of the continent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I have two more questions and they're very closely related. The first one Mm -hmm. is that the name of this podcast is Revise, Rebut and Resubmit. And we've spoken a lot with interviewees about the process of engaging with a reviewer, usually somebody who is anonymous and how Mm -hmm. to deal with the comments that they give. And in your case, you're not anonymous. They know who you are as the commissioning editor. They've got the history button so you can actually see which editor has edited which sentences of yours and how they've moved them around. And so my first of two questions is how, on the whole, are academics' responses to you? And I'm sure it changes from the first piece they write with you to then when they're more regular authors. But how do they respond to that process of having you really break to pieces and reconstruct something that they've written yeah. that they think is a brilliant piece. It's academically <laughs> robust and they've used good academic language and and it's completely unreadable by the public. So how do they engage with that on the whole? I'm sure there's a huge variety, but on the, on the whole, what do you expect when you engage with somebody and you send them comments? You know what, there is. So, so by the time we
1: get to the editing process where I'm putting in a question mark and saying, what do you mean by this we've already spoken and they understand well some of them and sometimes it takes a while <laughs> for them to wrap their heads around you know how we work because it's quite different from you know communication you know in that academic space but so so by the time we get there they know the intention of of the article that both that we both are working on me as a commission editor and them as an academic to say we are translating this so imagine that you're talking to your teenage niece is 16 years old and you're explaining to her about this so move away from jargon I often we often have this this line that I put in the that I put in brackets when when we're editing and say explain this to a non-specialist audience because academics as experts in their field, they have their own lingo that their own peers understand and you have your own acronyms, which we always argue that acronyms only familiar to people in that field. So break that down. So by the time we are editing, we've communicated that this is where we stand. This is what we're trying to do. And some of them do take it if something is impenetrable, I'm going to every single sentence is going to have a question mark. It's going to have a comment, and so I always let them know that this is so readers understand. Yeah. I'm not like just slaughtering your copy, you know, just for fun. It's so people that read it who aren't in your field would understand. So we really do try to drive that po- the, the point home. So by the time we're editing, they kind of understand what it is that's behind our questions or suggestions. Me taking. In the paragraph that you put right at the bottom and putting it on the top. So by the time that we get they they kind of understand what the point is. And they t- they're very open to just you know explaining it. Because I always say we are talking to people who are not in your field, who are very interested in what's happening. So explain it to them. And so I find that if if they if if I as the commission editor am very upfront about that, they play along with it. Sometimes People who who not and sometimes if they missed that for some reason in in the beginning of our conversations and they get like you know they get a bit of a a minor a minor stroke when they see <laughs> when they see the copy and all the questions that we have and sometimes it's worth calling sometimes an email doesn't work and sometimes they call it because I remember one author who said okay I see your your queries tell me who's going to read this, what is, who's your target audience, and, and then I realized, okay, I actually, I, I should have mentioned this before, this is the conversation that, you know, I should, you know, I didn't explain it before, and when I explained it to him and said, you know, it's for people outside that, that you know, people outside academia, da, 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 he actually, he was like, okay, I understand, and so when he read again my edits, because at first he was just unhappy, to say, like, this is not my writing style, and he was saying my sentences were too short, because we, 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 we really tried to make the writing successful think into the points, so one sentence, one point. Don't yeah. you know? String a lot of ideas in one. Exactly. So when I explained to him what, what was behind me making the sentences shorter, which he argued was not his writing style, he was like, "You know what? Now that you've explained it, I get it now. I understand." And you know, we, we, we went with it that way. So it's it's always different. And some people that are just not, some people would take us editing them in a way that would make them accessible. They, they take it as if we're dumbifying, we, we're dumbing down their research. And we always say, we are simplifying the language. We're not simplifying your brilliant research. We're not simplifying your findings. We're not, we're not, you know, dumbing down the, the, the work that you've done. We're just simplifying the language, communicate it to an audience that isn't in academia. And because a lot of them have written for, you know, they're used to that way of writing, It's a struggle sometimes, but once they wrap their heads around it, it's a very easy right from there going forward.
0: Yeah. So then my second question ties in very closely. As a journalist, before you worked at The Conversation, I'm sure bylines were incredibly important to you. And Mm. so it's curious to me, you put a tremendous amount of work into each and every piece in editing it. And probably takes you more work than it would have taken you to just write a piece yourself as a journalist. And exactly. so why why has the conversation taken the stance of the piece being in the name of the academic instead of reflecting the co-production of this piece, of this news piece written by mm. both the academic and the editor? Well, the fact is that, Jennifer, it's written by the academic. As much as I've edited it and you
1: know, we've given our inputs. And you'd know this that we can't publish something unless the editor i mean sorry unless the academic has clicked on the approve button because it's their byline so essentially it is their article we just the editors we're there to just polish it up chop it up put it back again with your you know with with the academics participation in the process because you know our our editing process is very collaborative so essentially it is the academics work it is their byline that goes in there I joined the conversation in 2018, and by then the Africa, the, the conversation Africa was launched in 2015. And so by then, I, I do recall an, a colleague, Natasha, actually mentioning that the, the, the wiser stance, I seem to be corrected here, that it's because there was a suggestion that it should be put at the bottom of the article who the editor was. And then they were just like, you know, it's actually the author, the, the author is the academic. So it's it's their article, it's their byline. We're just here to polish it up and make it accessible. So it's not about us. We're just putting in the work to break down those barriers in terms of making knowledge, you know, democratizing knowledge. That's that you know that's the term that we use. So it's not about us in this in this. We editors, we're not we're not writing. Yeah, we we, we edit the piece. We're not writing. It's it's not our baby. It's the author's baby. We just polish it up and make the baby cute and just you know <laughs> and we put it out there. So yeah, it's really not about us. So, and having been a journalist, it's it's different because I'd hate to work on something and my editor edits it and then it's their byline that goes there. It's not, it's my work. So as much as they assisted and edited and asked questions and made it better, their role is to edit, they, they didn't write it. So here the glory goes to the author because it's their work. And so it's their byline, their picture, I'm just in the background making sure that the full stops are in the correct place and putting in pictures in there and making it presentable. But the, the work is the academic's work and that's what goes out there. That's why you go out there under their name it's their baby.
0: Well, having worked with you, I know you do a whole lot more than putting the full stops in the right place and <laughs> adding the pictures. And it really is a very magnanimous position to have, particularly because mm-hmm. you are still working in, in the journalistic space and bylines are important. And I know it really differs between different fields in academia, but in the sciences that I work in, we are very inclusive in our authorship lists. We very seldom single-author any work, and we Mm -hmm. are also very quick to acknowledge people in their various roles in the acknowledgement sections of papers, and I I know that's very different. There are fields where people do predominantly solo-author their work, where those Mm acknowledgement sections are only things that they're contractually required to acknowledge, such as funding sources. But for example, I would, if I had an editor who helped me with the language on an academic paper, I would acknowledge them in the acknowledgements. If I had a cartographer produce a map for me, their name goes into the acknowledgements. And I think it really is an interesting thing in terms of how we understand co-production of of knowledge, because
1: Uh certainly from our
0: side, the kind of work I do with you and yes you're editing but you're editing in a way that is very informed by your own training and very informed by mm-hmm. a huge suite of knowledge in science communication and that piece would not be readable if it weren't for your efforts <laughs> and so I do know that it, it changes and I do think it is a very magnanimous position to have and to be so willing to do this incredible amount of work really behind the scenes and in the shadows because Mm -hmm. that work is transforming our ability to communicate science. So Certainly, I'm saying a huge thank you to you, but I imagine it's also a thank you on behalf of many other people who've written for the conversation and who recognize and acknowledge the amount of work that goes into the editing process. And it isn't just dotting the I's, crossing the T's and putting the full stops <laughs> in the right place, but it, it really is an intellectual activity. And, and when we talk about intellectual contribution, I certainly think that you and all of your colleagues make a huge contribution in that regard. Thank you so
1: much, Jennifer. It's also lovely for us because I, I remember I always I always say that it's like it's like going to school all over again because I'm engaging with content that ordinarily I because I I didn't read journal articles before during the conversation. <laughs> so now it's also a schooling for me, and I'm learning about cyclone like, die and you know, you know the dynamics and climate change and all of those things. So for us, it's also a learning process, and I think that just that's also just what makes this work so fulfilling. Is that every day you're in school because you're engaging with the experts and you know ordinarily you wouldn't be doing that so for us it's also just such a joy it's such an enriching experience and it's also an education so as much as academics learn how to communicate their work data and all of those things we're also learning about the science because we're not scientists but we're engaging with the science from you know from the generosity of authors like yourself who do take time in addition to writing for the academic journal do take time to communicate this you know who, who have the, the willingness and the energy that it takes to process the article in the way that we do. So it, it's it's a very, it's a very fulfilling experience for us as well on the other side, you know, behind the scenes. So thank you as well for your generosity and your colleagues as well for just making the time and engaging with us and answering our stupid questions, but not so stupid. But you know, and, and just, you know, yeah. So it's it's enriching for both of us for us as well on this side. So thanks to you as well and and, and the authors that so generously share their knowledge and their time. And contribute to what we do
0: yeah no you're very welcome and it, it certainly is a fulfilling process on on this side of the the laptop screen as well <laughs> <laughs> so non thank you again for joining us on this podcast episode it's really great to get insight into what the conversation is doing and A very different process in terms of working and reworking and revising and resubmitting work in a way that is digestible by the public. And I would really like to encourage anyone who is listening to this, who has recently published a paper or is an academic who's working in a field that is newsworthy to reach out to Non-Tobacco and her colleagues because they are always keen to engage with new people. And there is just so much space to encourage as we've been discussing, a wealth of voices from across the African continent and globally. There are many other chapters of of the conversation. So do reach out to this team because they're doing amazing work. And I think it's so important in being able to put good and well-researched information out to the public.
1: Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's been a blast. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Revise, Rebut and Resubmit. Hopefully, it's given you some insight into the process of academic writing and approaching that first academic paper. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more of this show, please subscribe to this podcast. A huge thanks again to the Centre of Excellence for Paleoscience for supporting this work.